This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Stuart Clowans, whose book is titled Crooked But Never Common, The Films of Preston Sturgis. Stuart Clowans was film critic for The Nation from 1988 to 2021, and before that wrote a small press and poetry column for the magazine for two years. His previous book was Film Follies, The Cinema Out of Order. There's a Preston Sturgis retrospective which runs at Pacific Film Archive July 27th through August 26th, and Stuart Clowans will be on hand to introduce The Great McGinty on July 27th, The Lady Eve on July 29th, and The Miracle of Morgan's Creek on July 30th. For more information on the entire retrospective, you can go to bampfa.org. That's B-A-M-P-F-A dot org. All of the films mentioned in this interview are available streaming, either for rental via Amazon or Apple, or in the case of Unfaithfully Yours, The Sin of Harold Diddlebach and The Great Moment, they're free on YouTube. Stuart Clowans, what made you decide to write a book about Preston Sturgis, who was a director in the 1940s and screenplay writer prior to that, and then kind of disappeared without a trace, dying in the mid-50s? What prompted you to write this particular book? Terrific question, Richard, and thank you for, for having me on. My long misadventure of writing about Sturgis really comes from two experiences. The the first is simply being exposed to the films in the early 1970s and becoming a tremendous enthusiast for them. And the other part comes from being aware of his place in Hollywood history, which is very distinct and very important. And the body of films themselves is distinct within Hollywood history. The main point about that is that Sturgis was the first writer-director in the sound era in the major studios. This is a circumstance that would, of course, be meaningless that he was the first if the films were no good. But the films are great. Uh, I would call them the crown jewels of of Hollywood comedy, um, except that we are a democratic nation and we don't bow to sovereigns. So I can't say that they're crown jewels, but they are unusually rich and glittering films. And the characteristic of them that, that makes them so distinct is not only that they really reflect the attitudes, the views of, of, a, of a single filmmaker in a way that was extraordinarily unusual in Hollywood at that time, that there is so much in the films that are intriguing and that continue to have things that, uh, that 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 speak to us today, there's a certain cynicism in in Sturgis, married with a longing for for romantic love, and a disillusionment with romantic love and a longing for it, and on top of that, a general social cynicism, all of which can be very moving and and very engaging to audiences. He was a one man crusader against the prudery of the production code and almost single-handedly busted the production code. Uh, this is something else that is, is relevant for him. In the film Sullivan's Travels, he created a scene of Black communal life that was so respectful and dignified that you almost can't assimilate it within the body of Hollywood film up to that point. Um, For these reasons and many others, I became very drawn to the films and also very intrigued by all the loose ends that I found dangling from them, because it was very obvious that Sturgis was a man with a dreadfully consistent mind. He did not leave things hanging unless he actually meant to. So why were all these puzzles left in the films? Uh, left there for somebody to follow up on, to solve if possible. I'm a crossword enthusiast. That also appealed to me. So for for all of those reasons, I went for Sturgis. There have been biographies, as you mentioned. This is not one. But 
take us back. At what point did you say, you know, it's time to write a book about the individual films and to start watching them again to find things that you hadn't seen before? Great question, Richard. Thank you for that. It it goes back to an invitation I had in, in the late 90s. I had an old teacher, mentor, friend who was running the Center for the Humanities at Wesleyan University. He was organizing a symposium in honor of Stanley Cavell, the philosopher who taught for many years at Harvard and whose subject matter included American film. Stanley Cavell wrote an extraordinary book uh, titled Pursuits of Happiness, the American Comedy of Remarriage. Very influential book, brilliant book. And I was invited to come to the symposium and to deliver a paper. And I, I was the only non-philosopher invited. My, my, my friends and mentors said to me, just pick anything you want from film. We'll, we'll just rely on you. So I decided I would write about Sturgis's film, The Palm Beach Story. The Palm Beach Story seems as if it would fit perfectly into the genre that Stanley Cavell invented for his book. He made up the genre of uh, the comedy of remarriage. He wrote about one of Sturgis's films in that book. He wrote about the Lady Eve, but he didn't write about the Palm Beach Story, which seemed to me to fit perfectly. So I was curious, is this a significant omission? Why would it fit? Why would it not fit? What could you discover by following the film the way Cavell did? And I I should just interject here that Cavell um, believed and demonstrated that it was possible in his terms to read a Hollywood film. That is, Cavell believed on very solid grounds that Hollywood films were made by intelligent people who took care with what they were doing, and that the, the films were about serious matters. Even if they were comedies, they were about serious matters because you don't really laugh at a comedy unless you feel that something important is at stake. That brings up an interesting point, which is that, as you mentioned in Crooked But Never Common, Stuart Kluans, that a lot of those early writers in the 30s, when silent went to sound, came from the New York theater. They were playwrights. So their perspective would always be to have something serious underlying it, as opposed to, say, just a screenwriter from the old days of the silence. Could be why that happened? That's part of the explanation. The The fact is that a lot of the New York writers who came from the theater, and Sturgis actually was one of them, his first career as a writer was as a Broadway playwright. But but a lot of them came out to Hollywood with a sense of really contempt for the movie industry. They felt that they were they were lowering themselves for money. There was enough money that it re-elevated them, so that was swell. But they really thought that they should be writing their plays or their novels. And, and there was a certain looking down on the films and on the audiences. But you're right. The, the people hadn't checked their brains with the luggage when they went out to California. They brought their attitudes. The thing was that it was very common for films, in fact, it was more common than not, for films to be written by relay teams of writers. You would have the person who would write the first treatment, and that would be handed over to another writer who would turn it into a preliminary script that would be handed over to two other writers who would fill out the script. Then they would bring in somebody who would punch up the melodrama scenes if the producer thought that was necessary, or if there was a comedy scene that needed funnier dialogue, they'd bring in a specialist for this. You never knew how many writers eventually were writing the thing, and the director was also generally contributing dialogue cutting scenes, reworking things. So it, it, was, it was very, very unusual, uh, in fact, unheard of, when Sturgis was allowed to direct a film that was based on a screenplay that he and he alone had written. This was extraordinary. But to the point of, did these movies come out as works of art in which you could follow a rational argument? Did, did they unfold in ways 
that you could follow made a reasoned argument about something that was important to people. And even if there was no single writer, many of them did. So that was Cavell's point about Hollywood films. He went through brilliant exercises in showing how that worked out. When I followed him, I took the Palm Beach story and said, well, how does this check out against Cavell's thesis? What I found writing about the Palm Beach story was that it neither neither confirmed nor denied what Cavell had written. I still felt that it fell very well within the genre he had invented for purposes of study. What I thought was that there was a whole mass of detail of local color, um, especially of of matters that had to do with with the performances and with with the the visual direction of the film that Cavell really didn't touch on. But if you if you threw those into the analysis, the analysis became that much more meaningful. So that was my first time writing at any length about Sturgis. I discovered that I liked to do it. I discovered also that it came fairly easily to me, and I'd rather have easy than hard. So I decided I'll, I'll try to keep writing about Sturgis. Recently, I've seen all of the available, easily available uh, Sturgis-directed films, plus Easy Living. What struck me the most, and I want you to go into this a little, is how if you see these films one after another, by and large, the women are strong, the women are independent, the women are smart, they're articulate, and the men, the men are generally weak. Henry Fonda in Lady Eve, Joel McRae in Sullivan's Travels and Palm Beach Story, and even to a lesser degree, but still Eddie Bracken in his two films. And the discrepancy between the weak men and strong women is something that was pretty obvious in silence. But once you move into the talkie and code era, that completely turns around, except for Sturgis. At least that's what I saw. You had smart, fast-talking, strong women throughout the sound era. Just to pull out one example, again, an, an example that that is addressed by Stanley Cavell in his book, Pursuits of Happiness, there's the Irene Dunn character in The Awful Truth, who is really much smarter than Cary Grant uh, and much more poised. There's nothing backward about her. Or look at Rosalind Russell in uh, His Girl Friday, the remake of The Front Page. Or Barbara Stanwyck, again, in Howard Hawks's Ball of Fire. Uh, there, are, there are plenty of strong women in these films. But you're absolutely right. Sturgis wrote some of the strongest female characters that were seen in, in American film. Not always. Um, Sullivan's Travels is woefully lacking in a strong female character. Uh, the Veronica Lake plays a character who is known only as the girl. And it is so obvious that at one point, somebody asked the, the Sullivan character, what, what's she doing here? The guy says, well, there's always a girl in the picture. Uh, she, it's all she fulfills is being the girl. So it's, it's not across the board. But yes, he, he, wrote, he wrote very strong women. And the men tend to be a little bit, not all the men, the, the leading men tend to be a little bit weaker, a little bit more self-deceived. He does have strong male characters. They tend to be the tycoons. Sturgis really liked businessmen, and this was unusual in the films of the 30s and early 40s, really to admire businessmen. And the the businessmen figure in his in his films, the tycoons, they're realistic, they're avuncular, they're kind, they're generous. They really take care of not only of business in the big sense, they take care of the business of the people around them. They take they take care of people. So those men are stronger figures. But yes, the leading men, they're they're kinds of a mess. And that is interesting. Speaking of strong women, you kind of downplay the Ella Raines character of Libby in Hail the Conquering Hero, but about two thirds of the way through the film 
she gives a speech about what it is to be a woman, which is pretty savage. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting, you know, that in the, the screenplay, um, we have the published screenplays from the University of California Press. They are a great boon to anybody who's interested in this material. And I, I should tip my hat to the editor of those screenplays, Brian Henderson, who did a magnificent job with them. But in the screenplay, when when the character played by Ella Raines is introduced early in the script, all it says is, Libby is a pretty girl. That's it. But casting Ella Raines, an actress who really had a kind of a nasty edge to her and a sarcastic edge, and in directing her the way he did and, and letting letting Ella Raines, encouraging her in that performance, that's where you get to a real edge in that character. And actually, that character has, has a certain bitterness to her that's really, really striking. In talking to some other people about Sturgis, we got into talking about character actors, and there's certainly a group of actors who would pop up in all of these films, of course, many of them pop up in the Astaire Rogers films too, Franklin Pangborn, Eric Bloor. But in terms of what is a character actor, these days we tend to see them as people who do different roles and disappear in their roles. But in those days, certainly William Demarest was almost the same guy everywhere as were Pangborn and Bloor. Can you talk a little about this supporting cast in the films of Sturgis, as well as the changes in how Hollywood views character actors? I think that there is something distinctive in the way Sturgis used what became known as his stock company. He went around the Paramount lot and he collected these these bit players, many of whom were considered to be already a little over the hill. And he didn't just use Eric Bloor here and Franklin Pangborn there. He used the whole bunch of them over and over again. They sort of became a human landscape of his films. Uh, they, they were as important as the to the backdrop of the storytelling as the production design was. Now, to me, the, the, the background to, to Sturgis's use of the stock company and the, the key to them comes from the way he learned to write drama. When he decided in his late 20s, early 30s, that he was going to be a playwright, he got a book by a Columbia University professor named Brander Matthews. Mathers, I'm sorry, Brander Mathers. Uh, it was called A Study of the Drama. It, very, very readable, popularly written, but substantial and 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 scholarly history of drama going back to the Greeks. There was long section there about stock characters, especially in Commedia dell'arte. And Sturgis, I think, learned a lot from that. When you look at the way he used the stock, his stock company, yes, you're right. William Demarest was always a certain character. He was the hot-headed guy whose bark was a lot worse than his bite. Frank Moran, he was always the very tough, big, growly-voiced guy who was really smarter than he sounded. Uh, there was Torben Meyer, who was the very friendly, sort of fussy, German-accented functionary in, in movie after movie. There was Julius Tannen, who was always there speaking in, in a thick Yiddish accent, and so forth. These were stock figures that he used again and again. But the whole key to it is to invest these stock characters with, with enough detail, with enough feeling, with enough real life that they, that they matter to, to the viewer. And that's what Sturgis was able to do. The implication, though, of the stock company and the implication of going back to Commedia dell'arte figures is that you're really implying by doing that that society is pretty much not dynamic. Society is static. The reality of social life is the reality of social life. It's never going to change. 
people struggle against it, but that's a little foolish or it's a little funny. But people are what they are. Their status is what their status is. That became part of the the worldview that you get in these films. We've said that I wrote for 35 years for The Nation magazine. I'm obviously not somebody who believes that society is or should be static. Sturgis was a rock-ribbed conservative who thought that the entire Roosevelt administration was nothing but a near occasion of corruption. So it's not as if I believe in his worldview, but what he made of the worldview in the films was something marvelous. Where it becomes even more interesting is that sometimes he did switch around the the way he used his character actors. The, the most interesting case of that was in the film Triumph Over Pain, also known as The Great Moment. Nobody has seen that film because the head of production at Paramount pretty much destroyed it. So, you know, there, there's a truncated, cut-up version of it that, that you can see. When you see that, you see, for example, that Julius Tannen, the Yiddish comedy expert of his troupe, is used in that film as a Boston Brahmin physician, and he plays the Boston Brahmin physician perfectly. Esther Howard, who is always in the films, the sort of flighty, middle-aged grand dame in Triumph Over Pain, is cast as a streetwalker. She plays that part perfectly. At, At a certain point, Sturgis actually was showing these people can do what they want to do. They could, they you you name it they can do it. But he did he did hew to the idea of stock figures who fulfilled certain functions with it within the film world. Stuart Clawans Sullivan's Travels is kind of a fish out of water in that I don't recall. Now these days we have films like this. I don't recall any film that switches like you know just on off slapstick comedy directly into serious drama. Am I wrong in that it's so unique that way? It was really unique when he did it. And it was a great risk, you know, Sturgis just, just to throw out the numbers, which which are maybe important between late 1939 and late 1943, a period of four years he wrote and directed eight films for Paramount. It's a tremendous burst of, of, of productivity, of creativity. Sullivan's Travels was the fourth of these films. The first three were based on scripts that had already been written. Two of them he pulled out of his trunk. Uh, the third had been something that he had started as an assignment for Paramount, but the scripts were already there. The first time Sturgis directed a film, knowing that he would direct it, and the first time he wrote a script, knowing that he was going to be the director, was Sullivan's Travels, the the fourth film. And he stuck his neck way out on it, because in Hollywood then, really as as in Hollywood or, or streaming land today, everything works by genre. The audience needs to know what it's paying for. Are you paying for a sci-fi thrill film? Are you going paying for a thriller, a crime drama, a melodrama, a comedy, a Western? What are you getting? There was no genre to Sullivan's Travels. So it baffled the studio's marketing department. They didn't know what to do with it. And it certainly discomfited the executives at Paramount. But Sturgis managed to run with it. And yes, it is a film that goes from, it's not just a film without genre. It's a film of many genres. It's got a slapstick comedy. It's got a small town comedy. It does a screwball comedy. It does some documentary style filmmaking. It gives you something akin to, or maybe adjacent to the Grapes of Wrath, which is a film that looms over it in an interesting way. So it's got all of those things mixed together. Very, very unusual, and certainly at the time, unique. Was it a moneymaker? Not really. 
Sturgis's films were mostly success d'estime for Paramount. They made money, but they didn't make piles of money. They weren't money makers like the Hope Crosby Road movies. Those made money for Paramount. Sturgis made some money with the exception of The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. The Miracle of Morgan's Creek was a film that the head of production, I should say the man who took over as head of production after Sturgis had started his career there. Uh, This guy really didn't like The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. He blocked it from being released. He decided he would cut it himself. He came up with his own edit of the film, which was a disaster. About a year after Sturgis had finished the film, Paramount had to ask him to come back and recut the film so they could release it. He got the final laugh because when it was released, it turned out to be by far his biggest commercial success. And it was also the film that busted the production code. Stuart Klawans, when you have a character named Cockenlocker, you know, even today when people mentioned that word, they can't believe that it actually came up not merely as a character name, but also the character description (laughs) in the 1940s. And that brings back to something you said earlier about how he was always trying to bust sexual prudery in his films. Yes, absolutely. And it, it was a miracle that the miracle of Morgan's Creek was ever produced because he fell afoul of the what was known as the Hayes office, the, the office that enforced the production code. He fell afoul of the head of production at Paramount. And because this was made during World War II and it involved portrayals of GIs, he fell afoul of army censorship on top of that. Somehow he managed to get this thing made. James Agee, critic for The Nation magazine way back when, said that the thing played as if as if the Hayes office had been raped in its sleep. How did he get away with it? Does anybody even know? He got away with it through sheer force of will, sheer determination. When he was just about to go into production, they were starting filming. He got a seven-page single-spaced memo from the Hayes office telling him what he could not do. And for the first time in his career... Sturgis went into production without a finished script. He had to shoot during the day. He would go home at night, type up the next part of the script, bring it to the soundstage the next day. He had never worked like that before, and he never worked like that again. But he managed to get it through. And yes, part of what makes it astonishing is not just that it did pretty much everything that the production code said you couldn't do portraying human sexuality. But on top of that, it's, it's a travesty of the nativity narrative. It's, it's the nativity story with the Betty Hutton character at the end becoming probably the, the hardest working virgin mother in all of history. Every time Eddie Bracken says to Demarest, Mr. Cockenlocker, I can't imagine how they got past this next sentence without cracking up. It's not just that. Penelope Houston, who for many years was the editor of the British Film Institute uh, publication Sight and Sound, she once remarked that only in a Preston Sturges film would a character whose name is Cockenlocker have to wonder out loud if another character could possibly be named Ratsky Watsky. Moving on to the Palm Beach story. I'm just curious if there's any proof that this was a sequel, because you talk about it a lot. I'd like you to go into the sequel nature of Palm Beach Story. Happy to. I'm not calling it a sequel, really, but, but it's patterned on a previous film. And since we were just talking about the production code, I should add that Sturgis had a lot of trouble making the Palm Beach Story as well because the people in the production code office, they they weren't exactly stupid. They noticed that the film was proposing that marriage is a form of legalized prostitution. And they weren't really comfortable having Paramount put out a picture that was putting that idea into people's heads. But that's really what the Palm Beach story is about. Marriage is legalized prostitution. The, the, The story of the film, the genesis is that 
Claudette Colbert, who was the biggest female star at Paramount, saw a preview screening of Sullivan's Travels, and she said to Sturgis, I want you to write a movie for me. Well, of course he would write a movie for her. Number one, as you've said, Sturgis loved to write films with strong female characters. Uh, She was the biggest star they had. Of course he wanted to write for her. No doubt he did what he often did, which is he started to look around for models and patterns. If you look at the way the Palm Beach story plays out, you see that it's like Claudette Colbert's best-known film. It happened one night, played backwards. It happened one night, was a tremendous success in 1935. And if I've got that date long, please forgive me. I think it's 35. It was an enormous success, uh, almost unprecedented, and she would always be known for the character she played in that film. It's the story of a rich woman who starts out on a yacht in Florida. She runs away from a marriage. She makes her way without luggage, cross-country, up to New York City, and she does it in the company of a big, raffish man, played by Clark Gable. So that's what Claudette Colbert had done in this tremendous success. Sturgis wrote a film in which Claudette Colbert started out in New York City, pretty much broke. She runs away from her husband and makes her way across country with no money and no luggage, winds up on a yacht in Florida. So it seems to me pretty clear that this this movie is running the, the whole thing backwards. And Joel McRae um, is the equivalent, ultimately, of the Clark Gable figure, but both at the beginning and the end of the movie, in this case. The person who fulfills the Gable role in the middle turns out to be Rudy Valley, who is not big, strong, sexy man, just the opposite. Rudy Valley is the guy who, when, when insulted, uh, says, one of life's tragedies is the men most in need of a good thrashing are always enormous. So, in a sense, it happened one night, run backwards. You also say, speculate, that the character she plays in It Happened One Night, now she's several years older, She's the marriage has kind of deteriorated, and you could see it almost, if you substitute McRae for Gable, as a sequel. Yes, in the same sense that Godard said that Gene Seberg in Breathless is the same character as in Bonjour Tristesse, except six months later. He said all you had to do is put the, the title six months later at the end of Bonjour Tristesse, and then you would have Breathless with Gene Seberg. Uh, it's, I'm thinking more or less the same way. If you take Clark Gable and, and turn him into Joel McRae, the marriage that is consummated at the end of It Happened One Night could have turned into the marriage that Claudette Colbert has at the beginning of the Palm Beach story, which is that the big, sexy, exciting man has turned out to be something of a bore. And she's not getting any younger. And she can really see the moment when her allure will be gone, the possibility for fun will be gone, and how long is she going to stick around? So, so yeah, there, there is a way in which Palm Beach Story does follow on. One other fascinating element, because we keep hitting these tropes that are way, way, way before they've hit the zeitgeist, PTSD in Hail the Conquering Hero. I don't recall any film about PTSD that overt as in that film. And you may mention that, in fact, the actor playing the character with PTSD wasn't even an actor. PTSD was really a taboo subject. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know that John Huston, um, on commission from for the Army, made a documentary about what were then called shell-shocked uh, veterans who were being treated. He made a documentary called Let There Be Light about the treatment of these, of these men, all men in this case, who had suffered from their experiences in war. And having commissioned it, the Army buried it 
it was not released until the 1980s. The, the army really didn't want people thinking about what soldiers go through when they've gone through combat. So to make a film in which, uh, in this case, a Marine is clearly suffering from what was called shell shock, that was really, really another risky thing that, that Sturgis was doing. Um, his good friend, William Wilder, a couple of years later would make the best years of our lives in which he cast uh, a non-professional, a veteran who was an amputee because of the war. And that was considered, and it was a very daring thing to do and a very heartfelt thing to do, very important. But before Wilder did that, Sturgis didn't cast somebody who actually had PTSD. He cast a, a man who had been a champion middleweight boxer and then had become a bit player in the movies. And Sturgis had promised this guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write something for you. And my speculation, I'm, I, I think I'm right about this. My speculation is that when he started writing Hail the Conquering Hero, he thought about this man and realized that the kinds of line deliveries he was going to get from this ex-boxer, it's not as if they're addle-brained in any way. It's not as if the, the guy couldn't talk. He wasn't, he wasn't a stumble-bum palooka. But he would give flat line readings. He didn't read lines the way an actor would. And that this would actually come across as authentic in a character whose, whose fellow Marines call him Bugsy. William Demarest is the sergeant, said there's nothing wrong with him. He just got a little shot up is all. But there's clearly something wrong with him. And the farther you get into the film, the more you see that there's something wrong with the guy. So, so yes, it, it was a really daring thing to put that in. The Lady Eve also crosses the production code because most of the characters, not certainly not Henry Fonda, but Barbara Sandwick and her two cohorts, they're bad guys, they're villains, and they get away with everything. And that didn't happen in the code. Absolutely. Crime could not pay under the code. But, you know, Sturgis, he was always on the side of the crooks. <laughs> the title of the book comes from a line in The Lady Eve where, where the, the, the confederate of Barbara Stanwyck says to her, let us be crooked but never common. Yeah, he liked the crooks. He was on the side of the crooks in The Great McGinty. He was on the side of the crooks in The Lady Eve. Sturgis liked people who could make their way by their wits because they had to. And just recalling again the Palm Beach story and the Claudette Colbert figure, you know, I think that this is something that he owed to his mother. Sturgis's relationship to his mother is often spoken of as how she brought him up uh, among a lot of artsy people. His mother was Isadora Duncan's best friend, and she was always tritzing around, um, going to operas and ballets and museums and dragging the little Sturgis behind her. And he put out the myth to the press that he really didn't like that sort of thing. But I think he must have admired his mother, and I think that he appreciated that she was actually somebody who grew up poor. She grew up in a tavern back of the yards in Chicago, in a saloon. She made her way in the world. She turned herself into a character. And she just kept running a few, a few yards in front of disaster her whole life. I think that Sturgis really appreciated and respected somebody who could do that. And as, as for whatever hard feelings he had for his mother, which largely had to do with her having parked him all over the place when he was a very small boy, but he understood that she was chasing after happiness and staying a few feet ahead of disaster. So again, for the Barbara Stanwyck character in The, Palm, uh, in the Lady Eve, for Claudette Colbert in The Palm Beach Story, that's what these characters are doing. Criterion on their menu page right now uh, has a section called Gay Best Friends. One of the movies that they indicate has such characters is Easy Living, which 
he wrote the screenplay for. Is Criterion stretching it, you think? Uh, I'm trying to think who's the gay best friend in Easy Living. Franklin Pangborn and Eric Bloor are in it for sure, but Pangborn tells a friend, maybe Louie from the Hotel Louie, about the non-affair, if you want to call it that, between Gene Arthur and Edward Arnold. And that was the only thing that I could think of that they were seeing that as gay. Yes, I, I, I think that must have been what they tagged. There's no other gay characters in any of Sturgis's work that I could find, unless Franklin Pangborn or Eric Bloor, by their very nature, would be, quote, gay. Franklin Pangborn was always interpreted as, to use the code word of the day, prissy. That was his stock character was being, as they said, prissy. So yeah, I think Franklin Pangborn, in whichever film, in, in, in Christmas in July when he's the radio announcer, in Hail the Conquering Hero when he's the guy who organizes the parades. So, I mean, one could, one could say, yeah, he's the gay character. There aren't a lot of gay characters in Sturgis's films. What's interesting is that in The Great McGinty, the main character there, a bum who rises to become the governor of the state of Illinois, a, a, a guy who really comes off, the, not just off the streets, off of sleeping on the streets. Early in the film, somebody is treating him to a drink and, and somebody else at the bar orders, I forget what it's what, what he orders, it's, it's just something very simple, something non-alcoholic. And and the bum says, oh, check my back hair, Flossie. In other words, throws out a, a, an anti-gay joke. But that's really thrown out to show how crude this guy is. It's not in itself an anti-gay joke. It's a, it's a joke against the character and, 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 and how brutal he is. That also brings up a point about how much subterfuge was used to show gay people throughout Hollywood in those years, most of it, of course, on the order of like a gay step and fetch it. But now, of course, we as we try to revise our examination of it, it is curious that there's virtually no nothing like that in any of Sturgis's films. And he's one who's pushing against the code. That's true. That's true. It does not seem to have been a big part of his worldview. Um, you don't find the sort of thing with the open secret um, gay characters in his films that you find throughout um, Hollywood productions. Um, there's there's really a marvelous film by a guy named Mark Rappaport. It's called The Silver Screen, Color Me Lavender. And it's more... Mark Rappaport's clip documentary in which he demonstrates that it wasn't that that gay people were not present in Hollywood film. Rappaport's viewpoint is they weren't even closeted. Rappaport tries to show that they were right out there all the time, and it, it wasn't really very well disguised if it disguised at all. But you don't really see that stuff in Sturgis. That's true. Let's talk about the end of his career. He had this incredible run through from starting with his uh, easy living as a screenwriter and a couple of other films, but from the great McGinty Christmas in July, Lady Eve Sullivan's travels, Palm Beach story, the failure of triumph over pain, but then the success of miracle of Morgan's Creek hailed the conquering hero. And then we come to, two flops and over and out. And those are The Sin of Harold Diddlebach, uh, Mad Wednesday, and Unfaithfully Yours. It's kind of this weird dropping off a cliff. I recall seeing Harold Diddlebach and going, this is Sturgis? Yeah. What happened? He eventually came to a parting of the ways with Paramount. The head of production, Buddy DeSilva, had really done everything he could to make Sturgis feel unwelcome. Sturgis just really could not stay. It was also a period in Hollywood when a lot of the talent was setting up independent companies. Directors, producers were setting up companies. Actors were making themselves companies. 
This was largely for tax reasons. You could make yourself a company and then instead of paying taxes on a salary, you were paying taxes on the company profits and you made more money. Also, you had the dignity of having your own company and you were dealing with yourself. So Sturgis left Paramount. He decided he would set up as an independent. He went into business with Howard Hughes. He thought that Howard Hughes was a swashbuckling fun guy like himself uh, and that there was unlimited money. Sturgis loved to throw money around. Well, he turned out to be wrong about that. He made something of a mess of making the sin of Harold Diddlebach, and then Hughes just shut him down. So then Sturgis bounced over to 20th Century Fox, where Daryl Zanuck hired him, and he made Unfaithfully Yours, which is the last of the great films. You're right, it's a film that was a terrible flop. It died a horrible death at the box office. I think that it's a film that over the years has only grown in, in interest and in stature. I think that there's very little that you can compare it with other than Hitchcock's Vertigo, which came 10 years later. And there are certain ways in which Unfaithfully Yours is more daring in its confessional tone about men's attitudes toward women, um, what men think about women, how men feel about them, about, frankly, murderous murderous rage and, and fantasies in, in Unfaithfully Yours. It's, it's an amazing, amazing film. That was the last of them, though. It was a flop. After that, Sturgis was just knocking around trying to get work. Let's let's say that he he didn't lead a, a clean, healthy life. He was a five-pack-a-day smoker. He was a heavy drinker. He was older in his late 40s, early 50s than he really ought to have been because of burning himself out with work, but also the way he treated himself. There's a sense in which, yes, he went into decline, but the industry had also changed radically, and he couldn't find his way back in. He just couldn't find it. You know, Orson Welles couldn't stay in Hollywood. He went to Europe, and he found a way to make it in an era of international co-production. It wasn't easy for Welles, but he could do it. A number of American filmmakers wound up in Europe in the 50s trying to make it in international co-production. Sturgis never really managed to do that. He tried hard, but he he just couldn't catch on. And part of that was the alcoholism. Part of that was he was a little too proud to bend about things. And perhaps perhaps some of the genius had burned out by that point. I'm not sure. But yes, the last 10 years were very sad. One question that is completely different and obviously worth an interview itself, Stuart Klawans, but I'm going to ask you quickly, What is going on with film today? Are we seeing the death of the movie theater, or is this just kind of an interregnum between point A and point C, let's say? Look, just as the movie palaces of the 1920s through 40s are gone and are not coming back, that was a distinct era, and it was wonderful. And those of us who were around for the end of it will always remember it with great love. But the movie palaces are no more. That's just not happening anymore. The multiplexes are pretty much dying because the malls are dying. Where did you find your multiplexes? You found them in the malls. The mall as real estate is no longer what it was. So we have to get accustomed to this. Between COVID, people just wanting to stay home, Uh, You couldn't go out, really, and even after you could go out, a lot of people, um, me included, were very cautious about going and sitting in a theater. There was that, and then learning the convenience of not spending that much money to go to the theater where they're charging you a lot. They're making you sit through 20 minutes of advertisements. The people around you are talking and kicking the back of your seat. Uh, and the snacks cost a lot of money. You can stay home. Nobody's kicking the back of your seat. It's costing you maybe one-tenth of what it would cost to go to the movie theater. If there are a couple of you doing it, it's easier. It's more convenient. So are people going to continue to sit at home and stream movies? 
um, especially when we have services like Criterion? Yeah, I, th- I think so. This is just the way it's evolving. Are there still going to be wonderful places where you can see films projected the way that they were intended to be projected? So, yeah, should you go to the Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive and see Sturgis on the screen? Yeah, I hope you will, because it's marvelous to see it on the screen, and it is a different experience than you will get even if you have a really big TV set at home. It's different, and it's marvelous. But this is going to be a specialty market from now on. Stuart Klawans, all of these reviews, will they ever be collected? I actually have a third book. It came between Film Follies. Film Follies is a is a is a monograph. And after that there was a collection of, of reviews. Reviews from the period nineteen eighty nine through two thousand one. So a, a chunk of my nation magazine stuff. Um it's it's a book called Left in the Dark, which seemed to me an appropriate title for film reviews from the Nation magazine. So there is that. Uh, I don't know that anybody wants further collection, especially when Left in the Dark sold in the high two figures. (laughs) Two reasons for subscribing to The Nation with the crossword puzzles, which are now gone, and your reviews. So, Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Stuart Klawans, whose book is titled Crooked But Never Common, The Films of Preston Sturgis. There's a Preston Sturgis retrospective, which runs at Pacific Film Archive July 27th through August 26th, and Stuart Klawans will be on hand to introduce The Great McGinty on July 27th, The Lady Eve on July 29th, and The Miracle of Morgan's Creek on July 30th. For more information on the entire retrospective, you can go to bampfa.org. That's B-A-M-P-F-A dot org. All of the films mentioned in this interview are available streaming, either for rental via Amazon or Apple, or in the case of Unfaithfully Yours, The Sin of Harold Diddlebach, and The Great Moment, they're free on YouTube. There were two Preston Sturgis films released after Unfaithfully Yours, which Stuart Clowans notes in his book. They are The Beautiful Blonde from Bashful Bend and a French co-production released as The French, They Are a Funny Race. The first has little to recommend it, and the latter is a bastardized version of what might have been a better film in French. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.